when you get not enough sleep, not only are you going to feel worse when you wake up, but like your longevity is going to be affected, your sex life is going to be affected, your creativity, your productivity, your mood. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britt Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Sleep, a necessity for all, yet a luxury for so many of us. When it comes to getting a proper night's rest, many of us struggle to get sleep that makes us feel well-rested. And not only that, but the act of simply trying to fall asleep is a hurdle for a lot of us as well. If you're like me, you've probably been taught things like getting eight hours of sleep is what's most important. But turns out, I think we've been tracking the wrong metrics our whole lives. Today, I'm talking to Jeff Kahn, the master of sleep science and also the co-founder and CEO of Rise Science, an app that actually claims sleep debt and your circadian rhythm are the two most important factors in sleep, and it helps you track them too. Jeff and his co-founder, Leon, were also the first to publish research on technology-enabled sleep behavior modification over a decade ago. It's the largest known study on sleep in real-world job performance. Their work has been featured in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, on ESPN, and so much more. So keep listening to find out how to get a better night's sleep starting tonight. Welcome to the show, Jeff. It's a ton of fun to be here and hopefully we'll also have some fun for the listeners as well. How did you get so fascinated with studying sleep? So it goes back about 10 years ago and I was in engineering school. I was up late at night, up early in the morning. Probably you remember those days and I was just exhausted like everyone else was. And I wanted to find you know, what I needed to do to feel better. And so I started researching sleep science on my own and basically came across everything that's still out there today. Like, should I take melatonin? Are there other supplements I need to consider? Do I need to get some gadgets to track my sleep? Do I need to get a new mattress? Like, just what do I need to do so that I feel better? And I was pretty confused about actually the answer to that question. So luckily, I was young enough and had enough freedom to go to my school sleep science department and just beg them to take me on as an apprentice. And so it's actually there that I learned the answer to the question, what you need to do, and at least what sleep science has learned about that answer. And also, I was able to publish a paper with Leo and my co-founder all around, how do you actually help everyday people get the benefits of sleep? And what do you need to do? And how does it work? And so that was a ton of fun. And then sort of fast forward to 2015, the elite athletic world had found out about this research. And so I wasn't expecting to work with pro or college athletes. But very quickly started working with teams like Alabama and Clemson and the Patriots and the Cowboys, you know, list goes on and got very, very close to the problem even there from a practical standpoint. And then around mid 2018, just realized that we were able to help these players feel so much better. And if we could give them energy, well, we could give everyone with a mobile phone the most important inputs to their energy. And so that's what we've been working on since 2018. And it's just been a total both the entrepreneurship journey and also sort of the sleep science journey for me has been just so much fun. And I hope this is the last business that I start. I don't consider myself an entrepreneur. I really just sort of love this topic and I hope that I get to do it for a long time. It's interesting because 
a third of our life, presumably, is sleeping. And yet I don't feel like we actually invest in our sleep, like we invest in our work or we invest in like our self-care and our skincare and like yeah. all these other things. But it's like the number one thing that drives our health, right? So I'm curious, like out of your decade plus of studying sleep, like what are the most common misconceptions that humans believe about sleep? Yeah, so definitely want to answer that because I think it's important. I want to maybe even start with also just a really big claim because I went through your whole podcast history and looked at all of the amazing people that you've had on and the amazing sort of topics that you've talked about. And I noted a couple like longevity, sex, creativity, productivity, your career, how to focus better, how to stress less, how to find joy, how to boost your mood, how to be funnier, how to get your skin health better. Man, this sounds like a great podcast. We've really jumped all over the place in this podcast, by the way. And so I thought about that. And what I think is important is it seems like your listeners care about ultimately, and maybe why I got interested in this, is how do you get the most out of the time we have? How do you feel better? Hopefully, longevity scientists figure out how to also extend our lifespan. But in the case that they don't, how do we make sure that we get the very most out of every minute, day that we have? And as I was thinking about that and certainly reflecting on maybe what I've learned over the last 10 years, and I think maybe the biggest misconception, and this is what I used to think, is that sleep is just sort of how you feel when you wake up in the morning. Like if you wake up and you're kind of groggy, like your sleep had to do with that. And what the last 100 years of sleep science has shown, and yeah, it's been around for almost 100 years. It started in 1925 at the University of Chicago. And we know more about sleep than we do nutrition, physical activity, skin health, you know, all that stuff which is sort of eye-opening to people. But I think the biggest finding, in my opinion, and I'll credit this to one of my mentors, a guy named Mark Rosekind, who used to lead Stanford Sleep Research Center and has been a mentor for a while. He said, Jeff, as if he's strangling me, he's like, when you get not enough sleep, it's like you don't have oxygen. So he's like, every aspect of your biological functioning is impaired. And so not only are you going to feel worse when you wake up, but like your longevity is going to be affected, your sex life is going to be affected, your creativity, your productivity, your mood. So like there probably isn't a single podcast episode you've had where sleep doesn't play a foundational role in your ability to function, you know, as a human in that thing. And so it's not to say that sleep is like the cure-all, but it is to say, if you think about your life as a house and you're trying to build a nice house, you certainly need a foundation. And without a foundation, your house is going to fall over. And like, yes, we need like great interior design and we need the right fixtures, we need the right wallpaper, but without the right foundation, like your house is going to fall over and sleep is that foundation. So I think if you care about skin health, you care about any of those topics, sleep is just the place to start in almost every single one of those. And I think that's what's so exciting about it for me, but there's a lot more to do once you master that. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely a lot to do to just master that one topic. Right. And... One of the first times I met you, really briefly, you were talking to my husband on a Zoom call and I jumped in the room and my husband said, oh, you should meet Brit. She's a great sleeper. She falls asleep instantly, (laughs) which I do. And my husband has a hard time falling asleep. And I've always believed I was a great sleeper because of that. And you said to me, oh, that actually means you probably are like not a great sleeper. And so explain why you think that about me. Yeah, this is a very common thing. I've probably heard it close to 100 times at least where people are like, oh, I'm such a good sleeper. I can fall asleep anywhere, like on the couch, in a plane, 
put me in a car with someone where they're driving, like I will just fall asleep immediately. And (laughs) what I usually tell them is that actually tells me that you're clinically sleep deprived. (laughs) So you've basically inadvertently run what's known as the multiple sleep latency test, the MSLT, that is one of the clinical gold standards for actually testing how sleep deprived you are. Essentially, they put you in a room, cold, quiet, dark, comfortable room at different times during the day. That's why it's called multiple because they test your sleep latency. Sleep latency is just the sleep science term for how long it takes you to fall asleep. So they test your sleep latency multiple times throughout the day. And basically, if you fall asleep in under five minutes, that's sort of the cutoff for clinically sleep deprived. And so many of us are there. You know, most of us, certainly five years ago, I think it's been getting worse. Hopefully, we start to reverse the trend. But we don't get the amount of sleep that our bodies need. And we build up all of the sleep debt. And we can, you know, as a result, have all the sleep pressure where we can just fall asleep whenever. And so what does it mean to be good sleeper versus bad sleeper? That's something we should probably talk about too. But it definitely tells me that you're clinically sleep deprived. The good news is that by sleeping more, almost every aspect of your life is going to improve measurably. So I think that's worth keeping in mind. Okay, so I'm clinically sleep deprived. We've learned (laughs) that about me so far. Was that new information, Britt? It was for me. Yeah, I was like very proud of my ability to fall asleep. I also, prior to COVID, was like an epic red eye traveler because I could sleep in an airplane seat. I could like (laughs) master sleep. But I do feel like I get good sleep. But how do you measure good sleep? So this is another one of those areas that's fraught with mythology from many different places. But there's this idea that sleep quality, quote unquote, really matters. And if I get good sleep versus bad sleep. And so I'd say the state of the science today is actually not quite clear what sleep quality is. You know, if you look at the sort of current state of literature and the metrics they use to talk about sleep quality, there's eight or nine very common metrics ranging from of the time that lights were out and you tried falling asleep, what percent of the time were you awake? That's called sleep efficiency. There's just subjectively when you wake up in the morning, how do you feel? There's also subjectively about a couple hours after that, how you feel asking about your sleep. So there's many different measures and none of them are sort of like the end-all, be-all. And we also know that sleep quality in terms of what people report can be affected by lots of things. So I think when you hear someone say sleep quality, you should be very interested in like, what measure are they talking about? Like your subjective feeling about what it was, how many times you woke up, how your sleep efficiency. And then when you start to understand that question, it kind of allows you to understand ultimately how that's going to affect how you're going to perform, how you're going to feel the next day. And so I think to understand that, which this is something that we talk a lot about in what we do in the Rise app, but also something that I'd argue is the most important finding scientifically in sleep science, which is something called the two-process model of sleep and wake regulation. Basically, it says, if you want to be alert and awake during the day, there's two things that matter. The first, it's called the homeostatic process is the scientific term for it, but otherwise known as sleep debt which is sort of a measure of how sleep-deprived you are any given day. It's based on how much sleep you need, which it turns out this is sort of another area that's mythological. You don't need eight hours. The average is slightly over eight, about eight hours and 15 minutes with a 30-minute standard deviation. Hmm. So it's actually quite individual how much you need. It's largely genetically determined once you hit sort of adulthood. So that's also, for some reason, 
people seem to get that one wrong quite a bit, even though the science is pretty clear about that. And so if you get less sleep than you need, you build up sleep debt. It builds up over about, in our work, we see it affect actual daytime functioning over the last 14 days. But there's some research that shows it can build up over 30 days. Some people are more or less sensitive to that debt, but we can talk more about that as well. But that's sleep debt. And that's probably the most important metric to track. So I just want to sort of pause there on that point, and then we'll talk about the second factor. So if you care about sleep quality, and you say, well, when I woke up, I just didn't feel like I had good sleep. I mean, that's important to know. But from a sleep debt, sleep need lens, so long as you're asleep, and you're not under the influence of any sort of exogenous drug, alcohol, THC, sleep meditations, you name it. In general, as long as you're getting naturalistic sleep, that's going to help you. Like that's what you want. And that's really what matters. And that's what's going to keep your sleep debt in check. So that's where sort of sleep quality can affect how you function. But it's not sleep quality itself per se. It's actually that sleep quality is then, you know, if you're up a bunch in the middle of the night because you're restless and you're just awake, now you're not getting sleep. And if you're not getting sleep, you're now building up sleep debt. And if you have high sleep debt, that's actually going to cause all of your biology to react in these ways that reduce your daytime functioning. Okay, so I'm just going to pause and ask about sleep debt. So you're saying sleep debt is a measure of the amount of sleep you should be getting with what you actually got? Or are there like deeper levels you have to track under the surface, like your deep sleep and your REM sleep and all these other types of light sleep? So I'll give you sort of the shorthand calculation just so you have the idea in your head. Everyone has a specific amount of sleep they need. Let's say for me, it's eight, I'm actually an eight hour and 20 minute sleep need. So I'm like right about average. I'm slightly over eight. If I get seven hours and 20 tonight, then I will have an hour of sleep debt tomorrow. And that builds up. So let's say I did that for 14 days. Based on what I'm telling you now, I'd have 14 hours of sleep debt. Really, you wouldn't. It turns out that the last night is the most important. People also have that intuition. But the last 14 nights matter. And so in that case, the last 14 nights matter, but the last night matters the most. Give you an idea, it's about 15% of the total weighting of you know how much sleep debt you're going to have today. So sort of the good news there is, let's say you have a horrible night, your new parent, you like get one hour or two hours of sleep, three hours of sleep. That's not going to like ruin you forever. Actually, just by that being later and later and sort of getting further away from where you are today, you're actually going to be able to feel better and be in a much better spot. So that's sort of how that works. Okay. So let me explain it so that I think I understand it. So if I go for an all nighter, you know, because I'm wild and crazy like that, I'm just kidding. I think I've done that once (laughs) in my whole life and I don't get any sleep at all. So long as I get Good sleep the next night. That's going to be really important. Yeah. But then I basically need to sleep well for like the next 14 nights to catch up on some of that sleep. Yeah. Well, so maybe not the next 14. So if you go a full day without sleeping, let's say you needed eight hours and 20 minutes, you built up eight hours and 20 minutes of sleep debt that one night. So now you need to figure out how do you pay that back over time? Oh, like, do I need to sleep nine hours and 20 minutes for eight days? Not quite because of all this complex waiting that's happening. Okay. I could give you the exact calculation of how much you need to sleep each night to break it down. I think what's surprising to most people is in general, the question we get all the time is like, I've been getting six hours of sleep a night my whole life and I know I need more. I can fall asleep instantly. Can I pay back that debt? Like, am I just screwed? Like, do I need to sleep like 10 hours for like the rest of my life to pay all that back? Like I have infinite debt. 
And the answer to that is that at least acutely, like what we can measure in studies, you know, when we look at how people sleep in the last two weeks or months, so forth, if you look at your mood state, your creativity, your physiological state, you know, basically anything emotional, cognitive, or physiological, you'll see massive improvements right away. So even within two, three days of getting your sleep need, you will see pretty big improvements in how you're functioning and how your body's functioning. So that's, I think, pretty exciting and surprising to a lot of people. So the way I think about this is sort of like cigarette smoking. You know, if you smoke cigarettes and you stop smoking cigarettes, like if you look at your lungs, they'll actually heal pretty quickly. But you still have these elevated rates of cancer and all these other things that you don't want. And so sleep works in that same way. Essentially, what's happening is when you get less sleep than you need, your body is going into a biological state where it says, I need to focus on survival. And what does it do? It basically activates your fight or flight response. What happens there? You get spikes in cortisol. You get spikes in inflammation hormones. You get spikes in blood sugar. And all that's allowing you to sort of just make it through. But doing that for many years of your life is going to take a toll on your metabolic system, your physiological systems, your immunity, all of those things. And so that's not quite known. And I don't think there's any really good research to understand what that relationship is. Other than to say, the sooner you can start getting your sleep debt back on track, you will get the benefits very quickly. And you'll probably also stave off some of those other longer term issues by getting your sleep debt back, you know, in check. Got it. You also talk about how the circadian rhythm is really important for us. Can you explain why and what that means? Yes. We just talked about the first factor in the two process model. It's the most important thing. If you walk away with one thing, like that's it. And then you've probably now maybe started to hear there's actually an advertisement from sleep number like on every Saturday now around track your circadian rhythm with a sleep number mattress. So maybe people are starting to hear about this. But what it refers to is circa is around, dn is day. So it's just Latin for around a day and then rhythm is rhythm. Everyone knows what that is. So it actually refers to the around 24-hour rhythm that we have in many of our biological and physiological functioning. So that would be reaction time, mood states, but also things like flexibility and metabolism. And actually, if you look at a lot of sort of cutting edge literature around even like new cancer treatments, they're actually looking at how do you time those treatments based on your circadian rhythm. Same thing with vaccines. We know that your immunity changes based on that. So there's a lot of information there that we're still on the forefront of. But what it means for all of us is we actually have a clock in our head called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It basically sends out signals to your body throughout the day, literally at a cellular level, telling your cells when to make energy in the form of ATP and when to reduce that, if you remember ATP back in biology class. And so as a result of what's happening, you actually have a couple of unique zones. So you have this period of what's called sleep inertia, this like grogginess period in the morning that people feel. You then have this peak of energy in the morning. You then start to actually have an early afternoon dip, a big evening peak. And then you actually have this period called biological night where your brain is actually releasing melatonin and signaling to your entire body to get ready for sleep. And so most people have no idea when these times are. They plan their day as if they don't matter. And just every minute of the day is the same. And that is going to be changing. So when you look at how you function, you know, when you look at not just from a sleep standpoint, when you say, what do I need to do to be someone who can show up in the world and get the most out of the day today? 
you got to be paying attention to, hey, is my sleep debt in check? And where am I within my circadian rhythm? And that's basically everything you need to know about sleep science as a human being that's not doing you know, fundamental research for the most part. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do we know what our circadian rhythms are like? I mean, for me, I think that I am way more of a morning person than a late night person. I think probably if I lived like in the caveman era, I would be asleep at like eight to nine-ish and maybe up at six. But as it is now, I think I'm going to bed more like 11 to midnight, up at seven, sometimes earlier. But is there like a test I can take or something or is yeah. it just like subjective? Like, So the sort of way in the lab to know, and then we can go back to how you might figure it out for yourself. In the lab, I think we just spent just in the US the last year, we spent like, I think it was around 900 million on melatonin. You know, most people have just in the US. So, I mean, we're spending billions of dollars a year on melatonin. It turns out your brain produces that for you and it produces it at a very unique to you time of the night. So for example, and actually the way that they do it in the lab is they will take salivary samples. So they'll sample your saliva at different times, you know, every 30 minutes. And then they'll take it back to the lab and say, okay, the one at eight, did that have any melatonin in it? Well, Brits did at eight, but Jeff's didn't. So Brits' brain was releasing melatonin at eight o'clock at night, but Jeff's didn't come out until midnight. And actually what you find if you survey the population, you'll have some people where their melatonin will start releasing or the spread, I guess I should say, can be up to eight hours different between people. And that's basically the phase one of the strongest phase markers for the circadian rhythm and sort of knowing where you are. So once you know that piece of information, it then allows you to make really good estimates about, okay, well, where's my circadian rhythm going to be four hours from now, five hours from now, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then there are things that can change that. And the biggest that we all have is light. So actually, when you get light in the morning and when you get light at night, if you've heard about blue blocking glasses or you've heard about getting outside for the morning or people talk about like going to bed and waking up at the same time, mm. the mechanism, what's actually going on there, the reason why people are saying that is that by giving your body sunlight when it expects to at the right time of your circadian rhythm, that's called zeitgeber. It's going to actually give rhythm to that circadian rhythm without actually getting sunlight and at the right time, that circadian rhythm will actually shift later for most people. And so you can get in all sorts of weird rhythms that happen, but this is why jet lag happens. It's just sort of out of sync with your sort of social clocks. So you need to be up when your brain is expecting you to be asleep. Mm -hmm. So if we were in a lab, we would do what's called your dim light melatonin onset. So you have to actually be under dim light for this to happen. The best way in the real world to get it, obviously in the Rise app, we do a bunch of analysis and we tell you this and how it changes and so forth. But there's a number of subjective tests that you can take that'll ask you basically, hey, if you were on vacation, what time would you go to bed? Hey, when it's a work day, what time do you go to bed and wake up? And it's able to give you a rough estimate of what that number is going to be. 
There's also just some fascinating population level differences. So from basically the time you're born till age 20, you get later and later every year. And age 20 is the latest you'll ever be. So your circadian rhythm, both men and women, are way later. And it turns out it's not socially induced. We can talk about that later if you're interested too. And then after that, so age 20 all the way through when we die, it actually gets earlier and earlier every year. And then on average, men are also about an hour later than women are. Hmm. So there are some interesting differences there just sort of at a population level. But I think the key takeaway is, hey, this rhythm is affecting you. It's going to affect when you're able to do your work. It's going to affect when you're going to be able to connect with your partner. It's going to be able to affect literally how you're feeling and what's going on for you every day, along with knowing that it's very different between people and that we have to be sort of aware and sensitive to those differences. That's fascinating too, that your circadian rhythm gets earlier after age 20. From when you're born to 20, it starts getting later. So that way you can stay up till midnight, no problem. Yeah. Some sleep anthropologists said, well, that's fishy to us because the data that we're looking at is, of course, 20-year-olds are going to bed later because that's their environment. There's like clubs and there's bars and like that's just what young kids want to do. They want to go out late. So the hypothesis was called the disco hypothesis. And what these researchers ended up doing was basically going around the world to different tribes that don't have discos. There's no bars you can go to. There's no electric lighting. And what they found by age was that same distribution. So age 20 was still the latest. It would get earlier and earlier. And the sort of evolutionary explanation, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But what the researchers talked about, which makes a lot of sense, is that if you're in community with other people, you'd want someone in the camp or in your community awake and alert if you could, 24 hours a day hmm. to fend off threats and you know know what's going on. So that's sort of one of the theories behind it. Whether that's the case or not, I don't know, but I thought that was pretty interesting. I was going to guess that maybe like 20 is kind of your peak physical fitness. <laughs> right. And so if you know someone comes to like rob you or steal your caveman food, then you can fight them off because you're staying up later. <laughs> but that too, that you can all watch. You can have your nightly watch hours. So what about sleep disorders? And how do all of these manifest into everything that we've just talked about? Sleep debt and circadian rhythm. Like if people have insomnia or sleep apnea. Are there things they can do to get better sleep? So the answer to both of those is certainly yes. There are things they can do. And there's things that the research has really strong support for. I think maybe it's helpful they're slightly different. So sleep apnea, for those of you that don't know, but I'm sure at this point, everyone knows someone in their life that has been diagnosed and has a CPAP machine or some other approach to solve it. But it's basically you don't get oxygen when you're sleeping. So then I want to trace that back down to why it affects how you function. So if you're not getting oxygen while you're sleeping, your brain is actually waking you up during sleep. And so you're not actually getting physiological sleep, even though your eyes are closed. So if you actually were to look at recording what's going on in your brain, you're not getting much sleep. And so because of that, you're not getting your sleep need, you're building up debt every night, and you're basically just walking around with a ton of sleep debt. So it's not actually that there's something sort of inherently wrong with you per se. It's actually just you have a ton of sleep debt, and you need to figure out how do we get air back into your lungs so that you can actually sleep normally. And so one of the things that I would encourage everyone to do, and Britt, maybe I think you talked about Dave getting diagnosed on a prior podcast. And I think you heard just he was snoring really loudly. Yeah. Okay. Just so everyone knows, in case you didn't hear this, got married to this guy named Dave, never snored, slept super quiet. I was like, great, this is going to go really well. Then like a year into marriage, 
Mr. Snorer like came out all of a sudden and it got progressively worse to where it was like so frustrating for me. I was like throwing pillows at him. I was like about to boot him to the other room. (laughs) I thought, oh my God, our marriage is basically over because we can't even sleep together. And then I learned some statistics that like some wild proportion of married couples don't sleep in the same room together because of this problem. And so at long last, he had this like sleep apnea test. Turns out he has like really bad sleep apnea. He had to have like no surgery and like all these different things. And now he sleeps silently again and our marriage is saved. (laughs) So yeah, it's really interesting to me that it came on so sudden and was fine for a while. But I think the thing that a lot of people don't realize is if your partner is snoring and if that person feels slightly sleepy during the day, they're at high risk for sleep apnea. And it's probably the most important thing you can do to add years to your life and live a better life. So that's it. Like those are the risk factors. And then there's all these fancy tests you can take. But if those are things that you're experiencing or someone close to you is like, please go get it checked out, talk to your primary care doctor and get it taken care of. It's a kind of a process. But if it ends up solving the problem, it'll literally add years and years back to your life and is probably the most important single health thing that you can do. So that's on the sleep apnea side. And circadian rhythms on sleep apnea don't come into play a lot, but it's a big problem. It affects close to 10 to 15% of the population. So it's not abnormal. Back when we were working in the NFL, it was actually 30% or even higher. Is it more prevalent in men? I think it's more prevalent in men. And then specifically in the NFL and college football, and they actually know all their next circumferences, they actually measure that and they train to get big there. And so because they train that way, it actually occludes the airway, closes it and makes them even more likely to have sleep apnea, which is a problem for all sorts of reasons. There was actually an NFL player who died and had a heart attack because of undiagnosed sleep apnea. So it's a very serious thing. And I'm glad that Dave is now doing a lot better. But for those of you that are hearing this, like, I don't know the stats, but it's probably as worse as just like smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. So Mm -hmm. go get it taken care of. The second question on insomnia, also, like people don't know if they have insomnia. They're like, oh, well, that seems like a medical disorder. Maybe I have it, maybe I don't. All insomnia is, the clinical definition is, do you have issues falling asleep or staying asleep for more than 30 minutes for three nights a week? And has it been going on for long enough to like really sort of interfere with your day-to-day functioning and sort of be annoying to you? And if the answer is yes, you have quote-unquote insomnia. So then the question is like what to do about that. And I think a lot of people turn to sleep pills and there's sort of a lot of approaches. The sort of gold standard first-line solution, by the way, way better than pills, is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It has nothing to do or very little to do with actual cognitive behavioral therapy like in a sort of therapeutic sense. And specifically, there are a couple particular regimens that a behavioral sleep medicine specialist will prescribe you and love you fill out diaries and they'll adjust your sleep schedule. And it actually sort of funny enough, and I wouldn't recommend anyone do this without the right medical care, but the sort of two best ways to reverse insomnia are called sleep restriction and stimulus control. So sleep restriction is basically, oh, if you're laying in bed for three hours before you fall asleep, just go to bed at the time that you would normally do. So if you're getting in bed at you know, 11 and you fall asleep at two in the morning, you just have to like be up until you're so sleepy that when you get in bed, you're just going to pass out. So that's called sleep restriction. 
The other one is related. And this is one I would say that even if you don't have serious sleep apnea, this is the one that I would encourage everyone to really think about, which is called stimulus control. And what it means is that one of the theories of why insomnia continues to happen is that your brain starts to form a connection that your bed is no longer about sleep and even your bedroom. So now if you're working from home, and you've got your desk and all your stresses and work life in your bedroom, and it becomes cluttered, and it can actually cause you to, one, now you're stressed, and now you're waking up in the middle of the night thinking about whatever you have to do, but your brain will start to form a connection with that. And so it turns out that the best thing to do is if you're actually, you wake up in the middle of the night, or you're in bed, and you're like, I'm like not going to fall asleep, what the science suggests you to do is get out of bed and go do something else that you find enjoyable lots of things you could do, doesn't really matter. And then once you're sleepy, get back in bed and just rinse and repeat. Hmm. Interestingly, there's actually some research, emerging research that shows that just that intervention alone will reverse insomnia and cure it better than any you know sleep drugs will. So sleep drugs actually don't cure it long-term. They basically kind of trick your brain into physiologically falling asleep, but not actually solving the root cause. So the theory is it's a behavioral thing and it's also pretty common up to 15 to 20% prevalence potentially. So, you know, also really high. But I would say that the other thing here too is there's maybe two other myths that I'd highlight that can really worry people about their sleep. If you're listening to this or you've listened to people talk about sleep, you'd be really scared. You're like, I'm not getting enough. I'm not doing a good job here and I'm a failure. Like I need to change this. And I think the really good news is that there's not a lot you really need to do Once you understand the science, there's even just less to worry about. So for example, like one bad night of sleep is going to be fine if your sleep debt's been good. The opposite's also true. If your sleep debt's been horrible and then you have a great night of sleep, well, yeah, it'll help you a little bit, but like it's not going to magically cure everything. But oftentimes people will do two things. They'll over-index on waking up in the middle of the night, like to go to the bathroom. People will be like, yeah, I have to like wake up to go to the bathroom and I don't sleep through the whole night. And like, I feel like that's really bad. And it's not. It's literally like sleep debt. If you're up in the middle of the night and you're struggling to fall asleep, so now you're only getting six hours, okay, and that's a thing. But in general, so long as you're sleeping enough, you're getting close to your sleep need, you're going to be totally, totally fine. So, you know, if you're waking up a couple times, not something to worry about. And in fact, when you look at someone's sleep recording in a lab, most people wake up 25, 30 times and they just don't remember it. Mm. So it's normal to wake up. It's part of what happens physiologically and not something inherently to be worried about. So that's, I would just say, something to think about. But yeah, insomnia is a hard one to solve and super painful when you're experiencing it. What about the differences between deep sleep, though, and REM sleep? Because I have heard that it's not okay to wake up when you're getting deep sleep because that is the most restorative sleep. Yeah, so this is another area fraught with myth, which is like, oh, you need to get more REM sleep or oh, you need to get more deep sleep and you need to optimize them all. And I think it's well-intentioned, but not based in any scientific evidence that I'm aware of. So here's what the evidence is. You do have sleep stages. You know, there's stages one through four and there's REM and deep. And literally what they do is they hook you up to a bunch of wires, look at a bunch of different brain signals and your eye movement and your muscle movement. 
And then they have human researchers go through and say, yeah, that looks like stage one, that looks like stage two. And they do that every 30 seconds of your nighttime reporting. Why they do that is interesting. If you trace back the history, another mentor of mine who is at Stanford Sleep Research Center right now was telling me a story of how they came up with this. And he said, Jeff, basically a bunch of different sleep scientists, I think in the 40s or 50s, got together in a room from all over the world. And like the Italians wanted seven sleep stages and the Germans wanted 12 and the Americans wanted three because, you know, it was sort of what at the time the hypnograms were sort of literally like recording second by second what it was. And I think the 30 second was basically one sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of why it even became 30 seconds. And so he's like, even the fact that we're using this stuff to classify sleep is maybe interesting from just a descriptive, like hardcore research perspective. You know, and like, okay, if like REM goes up, does that change things during the day? And there's researchers like Matt Walker that actually study that. But in general, what we know is that when you get less sleep or you change your activity during the day, you had a really hard, let's say, physical day, a really hard emotional day, the assuming naturalistic sleep, meaning it's cool, dark, quiet, you don't have any sleep disorders, you know, let's call that 75% of people, your brain is actually going to self-optimize what stages to go through during the night. So for example, if you haven't had a lot of deep sleep, your brain's going to prioritize getting a lot of deep sleep in the beginning of the night. If you haven't had REM, it's actually going to prioritize getting that in the middle of the night. So that work is already happening. And trying to mess with that, in my opinion, other than encouraging naturalistic sleep, it's a thing you can do. But like, why do that when like we actually know how the science works? You wouldn't try and hack together and run A-B tests like on a rocket. You know, we have rocket science for a reason. Same thing with sleep, like, trying to marginally change those things. It's interesting, but for most people, it's like, let's just not lose sight of sleep debt and circadian rhythm. And like, that's what matters most. And the fact that you think that we can artificially improve one of those stages, and that's actually going to on net be better. Like every stage of sleep is important. Like stage one's important. Light sleep's important for certain types of memory formation. So basically the core story is sleep debt, circadian rhythm. And that stuff to me is sort of the deep sleep and REM and this, I think partly it's sort of, and this is just, I'm on my high horse here, like way out of my zone of why this has gotten to be so big. But I think a lot of it was companies deciding to try and get engagement from that data of like, oh, if we can show people more data, that's going to be better. And they want to know more. And if we can just tell them their quality, and if we can tell them that they can sleep less. And a lot of it, I think is just not great product development practices. Now, interestingly, and you'll probably appreciate this, when you look at what Apple did for sleep and the Apple Watch, you'll notice they don't do anything with sleep quality. They don't tell you what your REM was. They don't tell you what your deep was. And they could have, like easily they could have, but they made a very intentional decision to not do that. And I think that was very wise of them. Mm. Now, let alone even being able to measure those things on consumer devices is fraught with a lot of error, you know, close to coin flip levels of accuracy. I'm wary, at least in terms of sleep stage detection in particular, and there's interesting work happening there. I just don't think it's that relevant to people sort of living better and actually feeling better. And I don't think it's the right area to focus on. I think that's fascinating. That might be the biggest myth you've like uh, unfolded to me, at least today, because I was really all about my deep sleep and you know the aura ring and all the things that I'm trying to track all the time. And it's funny though, but you're right. I feel like there's some placebo effect to it that I'm sure happens when people are like, oh, I got my two hours of deep sleep last night. I feel great today. And you're like, do you? 
There's a research study on the sleep placebo effect. And it turns out if you tell people that they got more REM, even though they didn't, they perform better in objective reaction time tests. Interesting. <laughs> so like it's real. And I'd say if that's helping you, like keep doing that. But yeah, I wouldn't overly focus on those things. And there's actually just a fascinating study that Jamie Zeitzer did out of Stanford. And he was trying to be, I think, very provocative. Stanford's known for sort of the birth of statistical and machine learning. A lot of that work came out of Stanford. And so Jamie and the Sleep Science Center said, hey, I'm going to partner with like the top machine learning folks. And we're going to take people into a lab. We're going to measure with the best, highest fidelity sleep lab measurement tools, the PSG polysomnography. And we're going to, instead of using sleep staging, we're basically going to throw every single you know machine learning technique we have at this to see if we can predict how people feel when they wake up. Like if we can predict subjective sleep quality, can we look at anything that's going on in your brain or objectively and throw the fanciest prediction models at just trying to predict how do you feel when you wake up? And the answer is all of the objective signal explained almost none of the variation in what people reported in the morning. And what did affect the variation is how many times people woke up in the middle of the night. So if you just know that information, you're able to explain way more of how you feel at least subjectively, than all of this objective data. So I think the point is, what we know as a community is sleep debt is a thing. It matters. It's consensus. That's what you should be focused on. Circadian rhythm is a thing. We've been studying for a very long time. And that's the two-factor model. And when you understand that, you can then look at any intervention or any investment you're making or anything that you're doing with sleep and saying, like, is it going to move that? And if not, don't expect that much improvement. If it does, you should expect real improvements in how you're functioning and you should be able to measure it clearly. So that's the scientific perspective on this stuff. It makes sense why it's all come down to those two factors for you. So again, yeah. sleep debt is just making sure you're getting enough sleep during the night. It can be broken up. It can be you have wake ups, you go back. It's just like total amount of sleep per night followed by circadian rhythm. Like when does your body like to be asleep and like to be awake and how can you try to keep it more or less on that schedule? So Jeff, you know, this is called Teach Me Something New. And we like to leave our listeners with a little homework assignment every week. Is there one that you could think of to give our listeners? I'm guessing where this could go, but but maybe you'll surprise me. <laughs> so the homework that I will give you, there's many things you could do. But one of the things that I think is really powerful for people to start realizing that this biology is real for them in sort of the first like aha moment or like, whoa, like all that science stuff is real. And whoa, it really affects me. And like, whoa, melatonin windows and like this stuff, it's real. Is if you go on Amazon and type in orange glasses, and I can also send you the link. There are these orange glasses. My wife and I have been wearing them for years. The science on them is quite strong. After work, basically, you know, let's call it just to make it easy for you, like an hour and a half before you plan on going to bed, put these orange glasses on wear them in the shower, wear them when watching Netflix, whatever, and then see how you feel an hour and a half later. And you will be noticeably more sleepy. And that's because all the light that's been sort of polluting your eyes is actually telling your brain to not produce melatonin. And so it sort of gives you like the caveman-like camping feeling without actually needing to camp, which is really cool. And they're dorky looking, but I would encourage everyone, it's like nine bucks or eight bucks, buy them and try them and do it for a week and see. I'd say the other thing is try actually getting your sleep need for like three days and see how you feel. And you will be just astonished at when you start to correlate your sleep debt, which, you know, within the Rise app, you can try it free for seven days 
and just start to see like, okay, when I'm at five hours of sleep debt, how was I when I got home like with my spouse? How was I as like a parent to my kids? Like when they like really got on my nerves, was I like really reactive or was I able to keep my emotions in check? How much fun did I have today at work? How creative was I? Actually, for me, it's funny you bring up skin health. For me, it's like a linear relationship. As I have more sleep debt, my inflammation goes up and I get like redness on my eyebrows and my nostril area. And when I get my sleep debt down, it goes away like immediately. Mm. So just look at anything that you care about and start to just say, okay, what's my sleep debt? And then what's that thing I care about? And I think you'll start to then see the power of this approach. And hopefully it allows you to stop worrying as much about sleep, stop worrying about quality and all these other details. But get the orange glasses. They'll come tomorrow on Amazon. Put them on tomorrow night and you will start to see that this stuff is real and then start tracking your sleep debt with one thing that you care about. And you'll just be amazed at how important it is for all aspects of your functioning. Oh, I've heard about the blue light glasses, but I have not heard about the orange glasses. So I'm buying them immediately for sure. Well, no, they look amber, bright amber. They look like these construction okay. glasses. But they're blue light glasses that look orange. Yeah, but the ones that Got like it. you can buy with the clear lenses don't actually block out enough blue light. So you have to actually buy these funky orange ones. Oh, thank you. That's a good tip. Yeah. Okay, everyone listening, go to at Brit on Instagram to look for photos of me with my blue orange glasses. I'm expecting you and Dave to put these on on Instagram. Yeah, we'll do the couple selfie for sure. Jeff, thank you so much for being here with us this week. Jeff, again, works at Rise Science. You can go check him out, check out more on the sleep studies there on his website. Thank you all for listening today. I hope you guys get better sleep. I agree. <laughs> this is the number one thing you could do for your health, for your productivity, for your creativity, for your marriage, for your kids, for your job, for everything you do. So please, please, please do it. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a virtual high five by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Britt.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Britt or follow us at Britt and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 